Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. The CFO role is changing rapidly, moving from cost controller to strategic visionary. And with every change comes opportunity. We are here to help you take advantage of this transition to win at work, drive your career forwards and lead with confidence. Join Hannah Monroe, Managing Director of ITAS, a financial transformation consultancy, as she interviews key experts to give you real-world advice and guidance on how to transform your processes, people and data. Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of CFO 4.0. Um, firstly, I want to say thank you to everybody for all of your recent feedback and suggestions. It's been great to have some ideas for the podcast. So please keep them coming. Um, and I've got a great lineup over the next couple of weeks as well. Talking of great lineups, I also have today, I have Gethin Nadin, who is an award-winning psychologist, host of the Word of the Good podcast, and author of The World of Good so um, welcome, Gethin. Fantastic to have you on the show. Um, yeah, br- great to have you today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really excited to have a chat with you today. So um, for those that don't um, obviously haven't, haven't heard of the Word of Good podcast and haven't perhaps yet read your book, tell us a little bit about what it is that you do and how, how you ended up here. So I, um, so I guess my journey into kind of employee well-being began at a large financial services firm in my early 20s when, when I had responsibility over kind of 25 people. And I had no people training, had no experience of kind of mental health or dealing with people who were struggling with mental health or leadership or coaching. Um, and I think that's the position increasingly people are still in, that they're kind of being given responsibility over people without really any experience or knowledge of how best to do that. Um, and so kind of that was my first experience into kind of dealing with actually, you know, to create a well-performing team, you really need to look after people. They need to be happy, content and, and, and well. And, um, you know, for 20 years or so now, I've been working in and around kind of employee benefits, employee engagement, employee experience. And the last few years, focus almost entirely on employee well-being. Um, and that the journey to kind of the book and the podcast started because as I became more interested in kind of employee well-being and the employee experience as kind of concepts, I read a lot more. I started speaking at conferences and, and did lots of reading and writing. And it started to dawn on me that we were really focusing on big progressive companies like Netflix and Amazon and Apple and all the things that they were doing with their you know, millions and millions of dollars of budget and really experimental nature. Um, but when you look at what some of the most progressive things we do to support employees at work are, they're not that far from the kind of tribe and fire of what humans have always needed. And so we can kind of peel the uh, peel back the pages of the history books and see people like Joseph Owen who and um, and Robert Owen who kind of ran some mills in North Lancashire in, in the UK and they started to realise that hey we're pushing these people really hard you know twelve hours is a long working day and they're worried about their kids so should we put a nursery on site so that they don't have to worry about childcare and should we give them education opportunities and should we, should we open an employee shop so that um, people don't have to waste their money giving profit to other people when we can just sell things at cost that will make people happy and healthy and you know, protect things like their financial well-being. Um, and that was in the, the the mid to late 1800s. People started doing that kind of thing. And there were quotes from people, those philanthropists at that time, that I could show you now and you'd think Steve Jobs had said it a few years ago. Um, and so I think when we really peeled back kind of what what it is that makes us happy and content and well, 
it's not the big gesture stuff that your Google does. It's the things that most SMEs can do around encouraging people to live their lives a certain way and support their lives outside of work. And so the book really focused on that. And I was, I was very lucky that that went straight onto the HR bestseller list and, and on Amazon and has hopefully inspired some people to make some changes in their organizations around the world. But isn't it cred- incredible that even, you know, so that was in the 1800s. So hundreds of years later, we're still trying to figure out how to do employee well-being and how to do it well. So so just let's say, take a step back and talk about what what do we mean by employee well-being? What, what does that mean for organisations today? I mean, it's, it's a great question. I think if you asked 100 people, 100 organisations, you'd probably get 100 different answers. Um, I think well-being has become a really marketable term. Generally, as a society, we've started to become more conscious of our well-being. So we've had celebrities set up well-being businesses. You know, Google and Twitter searches or updates using the word well-being have started to kind of really um, kind of take off over the last couple of years. So people are really kind of focusing on well-being just as a concept. Uh, And I think what's fascinating when you think about how the workplace has embraced that, they've really started to realize that, we have a responsibility over people, but also we might be causing some of these issues. And, you know, throughout 2020, burnout was a really big issue, kind of record levels of burnout. And so I think we need to move away from the idea that it's about buying lots of products and putting those in front of employees and more about how we design organizations. So to me, well-being is about creating the right environment for people to thrive, if I was to kind of put that in a sentence. So it's not necessarily about the big fancy office slide or the bean bags. It's more about how we how we work with our teams and how we how we I guess how we respond to them. Is that what you mean? Yeah, exactly. So if you look at some of the bigger studies on things like employee happiness, um, you can start to look at the things that people value most are um, you know they, they don't want to worry about money. They want to spend time with the people they love. They value the relationships and social time. We like purpose and belonging. We want to have a voice. We want to feel recognized for the effort we put in. We want to be recognized by our family and friends and our, and our workplace. And so those kind of really intrinsic motivators are just about being human. It doesn't matter what job you do. Um, yeah, I think we've been carried away with the idea of we need to offer mindfulness and we need to do all these kind of tools when actually the reality is we just need to give people what they've needed for hundreds of years. So you make it sound incredibly simple that, you know, we, we need to look after people. We need to give them you know, enough money so they don't have to worry. We need to make sure that um, they have time with their friends and family. But why do you think it's so difficult for organisations to do this? I think part of it is, um, you know, you're right asking the question. I'm not sure how many people really define well-being in the way that I think it probably should be defined. Um, And I think what I've seen in my experience has kind of been, as well-being has become kind of quite trendy, Boards and CEOs have made really kind of large claims about wanting to support their people. And then actually what happens is they almost look through the business and say, okay, right, where does this go? Because most businesses don't have well-being teams. I think that will happen. It's already starting to. But at the moment, you don't have people focused on well-being. And so they look around the organization and kind of think, well, it's HR, so it's people. So let's put it over there. Or reward and benefits are already sorting out private medical, health screening, gym membership, cycle to work schemes. Let's put it with them because that all feels like health stuff. Um, And so I think we're just kind of reacting to the situation and not really being massively strategic at the moment. Uh, And I think the the events of the last year will force people's hand to be more strategic and to have longer term plans in place. Um, And that's certainly lots of my work now is being spent with customers really looking at 
looking at that whole experience, looking at all those micro experiences we have from applying for a job, requesting leave, going through pay review, all these different micro experiences you have at work and thinking, are we designing those in such a way that they're either helping or hindering well-being? And when people start to look at the organization and how it's structured in that way, we start to realize, oh, shit, yeah, actually, maybe we're doing some things that are causing anxiety or kind of causing people to be upset. Um, and I think that's the kind of really kind of the, the kind of panacea I'd love everyone to get to is this idea of kind of we build businesses and we build organizations with well-being in mind. Uh, and that's certainly coming, but I don't think we're at that point yet. And so I think there's a lot of confusion in the market about kind of what well-being is and, and what problems am I actually trying to solve? And, and also, I guess we focus very much on being reactive. So lots of the mental health support is reactive. Do you support me if I'm in a mental health crisis? If I develop depression, anxiety, if I'm struggling, what support is available for me without as much um, concentration paid to how do we stop people from getting to that point in the first place? Um, and clearly, lots of things will happen in people's lives that employers have no control over. You know, people, death of a spouse, divorce, money worries, all those things will happen to us and we will bring that to work. Um, and it's not necessarily for the uh, employer to solve those problems. Um, but I think also we can't just react. We need to be proactive around are we building organizations that are actually, yeah, and, and things like you've seen people like France do um, instigate some laws around kind of checking emails outside of work times. You know, that's proactive steps to make sure that employees are taking care of themselves as well and to make sure that you're not part of any problems that might develop. And I guess if we look at it through a strategic lens for a second, so it's obviously got to be a strategic priority. And I, and I, and I think I, I completely agree with you, you know, COVID's really brought it to the fore. But what is the benefits of having, you know, imp- a good employee well-being program? Like what is the, is there a financial benefit? Is there anything you can share with us about sort of the proof points that companies have seen? So this is why I'm really excited to be talking to you today, because I don't get the opportunity to speak to, to finance leaders about this issue. Um, you know, maybe one or two conferences, I've spoken to people responsible for kind of the purse strings in an organization. Um, and I think what's been fascinating, and this has absolutely been exacerbated by the pandemic, is this kind of growing kind of corporate transparency and kind of the stakeholder influence kind of change. So the stakeholders in the business have started to kind of flex up and down and stakeholders from 10 years ago are not necessarily the same stakeholders today. Um, and so, you know, in 2021, early research that came out of the US showed that 94% of investors say they want to know about how a company treats its employees before they will invest. So you've now got investors kind of looking at uh, employee well-being and looking at the treatment of employees. And, and that's quite significant. You know, 94% of 600 investors in the US is, is a, a big chunk of uh, the people deciding whether they kind of give you the investment you need to, um, to grow. And I think one of the things we also saw um, in 2020, which again was a growing trend, but is exacerbated by the pandemic, is the role that the consumer plays in driving some of these workplace decisions. So we now know that one fourth of consumers say that a company's treatment of its employees has now become one of the most important buying criteria when you're deciding to work for or buy from an organization. Um, 82% of consumers said last year that they must be able to trust a brand to do what's right by their people. And a third of consumers now say that how a company treats its employees is the most important factor in deciding whether to become a loyal customer to that brand or not. And so all of a sudden you start to see employee well-being is not this HR and reward or well-being team. It's actually um, merges into kind of uh, employee experience and customer loyalty, uh, sorry, consumer experience and customer loyalty. Um, 
And there is a loads of evidence for any finance team to suggest that actually the value of investing in people is pretty significant. So the, the stock values of companies with high employee health and well-being scores are 235% higher than the rest of the S&P 500. So huge shareholder returns. So we're going to see this as well as investors, shareholders are going to start thinking, oh, wait, actually, if you need to do more around well-being because we get more money the more you do. Because the more comfortable people are, the happier they are, the more content they are, the more that they're innovative, the more that they're creative. And I think that's about creating this environment where we're not just measuring employee well-being by what our kind of voluntary turnover is or what our absence rates are. We're starting to see that employee well-being is an investment in the individual. And when we do that, we get more out of that person and the business succeeds because of it. And that's a really a good um, point to make is that it's not just about how much you spend, you know, like any investment, it's more about the impact you make with what you're doing with your well-being. So how does, you know, so finance, you know, our finance listeners are thinking, well, that's great, but how do I measure employee well-being well? You know, how do I get a gauge on what we're actually doing well, what we're not and where we need to focus? It's it's a great question. It's the one I get asked the most. I've just been asked to write an article about it and I find it so difficult because because my personal belief is it matches that of um, Margaret Heffernan, who's done a really good TED talk on kind of beyond measure and how you measure stuff in an organization. And she says that the most exciting things that happen in a modern organization, we can't measure. Um, and I've done a few talks before about our obsession with wanting to measure stuff. And I, and I get it from a finance point of view because you want to see that return on investment and that, that argument's not going to go away. Uh, at Benefex, we did some research with King's College London a few years ago, and overwhelmingly, HR told us that they wanted to invest in well-being because it was the right thing to do, which is great. But I know that they're going to have some difficult conversations inside when they say, I need a million pounds to do this project. And somebody said, well, we're not just going to give you a million pounds because it's the right thing to do. Uh, many companies aren't at that point yet. Um, and so I think it's a mixture of kind of uh, what I would call kind of subjective and objective measures. So the objective measures are the traditional measures of you know, what's our turnover rate like? You know, employees are an appreciation asset. We get more out of them the longer they're with us. And we need to get more people to pass that two-year point. Yet around 50% of turnover happens in the first 12 months. And that's what, you know, people are really expensive wow. to kind of train and replace. So that's always been a really, really important measure of are you taking care of your people? Because, you know, you look at CIPD and PwC type figures, you know, the average cost of replacing somebody could be 50% to 100% of their first year salary. So Six months in, you could be spending on average kind of 20 grand to 30,000 pounds just to replace somebody. Um, and that's an unnecessary expense. And so those traditional measures, I think, are still important. That voluntary turnover um, is really, really important. Obviously, absence rates and claims data when you've got income protection policies and you can see you know, how many people are paying for mental health support and how much is that costing you in claims uh, for an employer. So there's those kind of traditional uh, objective measures. Well, I'm much more interested in the subjective measures, which is asking people how they are and asking people, you know, does your employer care about you? Do you feel like if you went through a divorce or your your spouse or partner died, would we be there for you? Do you feel like we'd be able to support you? If you went through a mental health crisis or we have gone through that crisis, have we been there for you and have you felt supported? Because uh, I think that sentiment is really, really important. And I think, you know, you think about things like financial well-being as an example, um, it doesn't matter how much money people have got if they're worried about their situation and they need your support. Giving that support and feeling supported is far more important than the money they've got. 
So I think with well-being, you can use all these kind of objective measures like our employees drinking eight glasses of water a day, getting eight hours of sleep, drinking five bits of fruit and vegetables, all these heuristics we've been used to in our lives to kind of health and well-being. But at the end of the day, if you say to your employees, do you, do you trust us? Do you feel like we actually take your well-being seriously? Do you feel like we'd be there for you if you really needed it? I think the answers to those questions tell us everything we need to know about well-being before we even look at some of that return on investment stuff. Yeah, and, and I think the ROI piece is really interesting because, like you said, the, the ROI has already been proven. If employees are happy and, you know, they feel that exactly said you, they can trust their employee, then they, they work harder and they're more productive. But and, and I think the hardest bit is about getting an honest feeling for how employees are feeling, especially in a smaller organization that I think that's actually sometimes more challenging because people m- might be a bit more afraid to, to, to speak up um, rather than a big. So have you got any tips for how people can get that gauge whilst still getting an honest version of the truth rather than what they think they want to hear? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And I think um, well-being at work is, is so kind of richly underpinned by trust that if you don't have a trust in an organization, if your employees can't trust you, they can't tell you the truth and they won't tell you the truth. And that's really, really important. You know, We want people to bring their truth to work. We want them to bring their whole selves. We know from past data that many, many people have phoned in sick in the history of their careers because they've been struggling with their mental health, but they phone in sick with a flu because that's an easier conversation to have or the, the stigma attached to mental health means they don't want to tell you the, the, the true reason. Um, and if we're not getting that true data, if we're not getting that real, real data and the kind of truth from people, then we can't change it. We can't act on it. You know, that's, we need to get the truth from people. And a lot of that comes with kind of how we communicate, how we speak to employees, um, to create those environments where people can be honest with us. Because if they're honest with us, we can do something about that. Um, and so there's an awful lot about just kind of generally being more transparent. You know, last year was a great example of, of how we really probably should be treating employees. Because in this country, in the UK, during the first lockdown, two-thirds of companies said that their engagement scores went up. And then by kind of um, September, October time, they went down again. And people were about 25% less likely to say they worked for an employer that supported or cared for them. And I think what happened during the first lockdown is we kind of had this this camaraderie that you know, we were all facing a kind of uh, a common enemy and we all pulled together. And so organizations got their CEOs in front of people on Zoom calls regularly you know, every week in most cases. They said to everyone, you know, we care about you. We've got the support. You're not on your own. We're with you. And we know you've got childcare responsibilities and you're home educating your kids. And so we're going to be more flexible with you. And we're going to be just give you more breathing space and kind of give you uh, a bit more of our kind of time and attention. And so during that short period of time, employers started treating people the way they really all, always should have been. Uh, I think the risk is that we forget that when this pandemic's over, which is, I think, quite a big risk. But, you know, we started being transparent with people last year and we trusted them and that created some really nice conversations and environments. Um, and I think people just need to keep that up um, and, and make that a permanent part of their organisation. Raise your game with Sage Intact. Bring down your close time by up to 79%. Use agile real-time reporting for instant visibility. Land an average ROI of 250%. With the heavyweight cloud software rated number one for customer satisfaction. Finance that packs a punch. Find out more from ITAS, the UK Sage Intact Partner of the Year at itassolutions.co.uk. 
So we've talked a lot about getting a good gauge of where you think your employee well-being is at. What sort of programs have you seen be particularly successful in terms of improving that employee well-being? You know, both for small organisations, but also larger ones as well. What works? I mean, some of the best things I've seen is where organisations and and, and smaller organisations can do this far, far easier than large organisations. So it's one of the big advantages they've got when it comes to employee well-being for small companies is the fact that they can ask people. You can ask 50, 100 people quite easily, you know, what do you need? What aren't you getting from work? What more support could we be giving? And I think lots of people really appreciate just being asked that question sometimes, even if you don't have an answer. That's what gives you this idea of, will they be there for me? Yeah, well, I've seen them be there for other people, so I think they would be there for me. Um, And so you don't actually have to do stuff sometimes. You just need to give people the impression that you care for them. And I think if you think about any relationship we've got in life with our family and friends, we judge those relationships by the people who are there for us when we really need it. You know, there's this old adage around kind of, you'll know who your friends are when you go through a difficult time. And I think it's the same with employment. You'll know whether your employer is a good employer because when you go through a difficult time, they'll be there for you. And unfortunately, about 50% of people last year said they didn't feel like their employer was there for them whilst they faced the pandemic. And so um, I think some of the most successful things I've seen is where we've just been able to ask people. Um, one, one small marketing firm spoke to me about a year and a half ago about wanting to improve things for their staff. And they do some really good stuff around you know, buying everyone coffees on a cold day from Starbucks and getting them ice creams on a warm day and they do loads of social events and have pizzas sent to the office on Friday and they do all this kind of great culture stuff. Um, But when I told them to ask their employees what they wanted, the two top things they wanted was we wanted sick pay because they didn't get sick pay. They just got kind of government standard. Uh, And they basically said, we can't afford to not get paid. So people are coming into work ill. This is before the pandemic with kind of flu and colds. And that was just annoying everyone else that these sniffles around this small office. Um, and the other one was that they gave the, the basic rate of, of holiday allowance for the UK. And so all of these people's partners had about, on average, about five days holiday extra a year than those people were getting. And they were basically saying it's just really kind of screwing up our ability to go on holiday together because we can't take some of the same time off. And my partner's at home for a week longer than I am. And that actually, is that fair? You know, I've got friends who are getting 35 days holiday and you're just giving me 21. And so all of a sudden, all the cool culture stuff that they were doing paled into insignificance because actually employees are like, actually, there's these two basic things we'd really like you to change. Um, and thankfully, they went on and changed that and increased the allowance and started paying sick pay. But it goes to show that some of the shiny things can be quite easy to implement and to buy, and they look quite cool. But some intrinsically, some of the things people want are, are pretty basic stuff. We might be surprised that if we ask them, what more could we be doing for you? I guess it's if we co- if we think about Maslow's theory of you know of needs, it's, it's coming back to that, isn't it? What is the basic level that you need to get right? Are you paying the right amount? Are you, you know uh, do they have enough holidays? You know do they have? Can they call in sick? Not worry about it, and then you can get onto all the cool stuff like the free the swag and the you know the the awesome gear and the the pizza on a Friday, <laughs> which I have to say I think is a good one. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that stuff is really important, right? But it's is the icing yeah. on the cake of exactly as you said, some kind of core needs. And you know, it's interesting if you look at the World Happiness Index and you look at um, kind of revenues and kind of income per per capita in different countries. Money doesn't make people happy as soon as it's bought them basic healthcare, basic education, roof over their head, food in their bellies. 
past a certain point, money doesn't really make you that happy. In, in the US and the UK, in the US, it's about seventy dollars to $80,000, I think, is the figure at the moment. Once you start earning that, your happiness does not increase. And it barely increases even if you become a billionaire. And most of the Forbes 500 in the US don't have happiness ratings that are really any significantly higher than the average American. And so I think if you take that, it's basically as soon as we start having those basic needs that you just mentioned, the the luxury stuff on top of that is your kind of purpose and belonging, things like that. And then you start getting to some of those more kind of perks and benefits that that people really value. Um, and I think, you know, exactly as you said, you know, some of those Maslow hierarchy of needs is, you know, do I feel like I belong? So do I kind of feel like I contribute and my contributions recognized? Do I feel like I'm part of this machine that I work for? Um, do I get recognized regularly? Do I feel appreciated at work? Do I have a voice? Am I allowed to give my opinions? And do I feel like my ideas and opinions are listened to? Again, back to the start of this conversation, all that really core human stuff that hasn't changed for hundreds of years is still really important to us. And you don't need to be spending millions like Google do on slides and bringing borough market into the office and doing all these things. Anyone listening to this now who runs or holds a senior position in a business can give people that voice and give people that attention. Um, it, it's more kind of time and strategy than it is buying stuff and spending money, I think. Yeah, well, there was an, an interesting statistic actually kind of on the, along the, the lines of what you're saying is actually when they analyze the spending habits of those that were more well off is when they spend, spent money on things that gave them more time, like cleaners, and you know, allowed them to do more of the things that they love. That was had a much bigger impact on them as an individual than, you know, buying the fancy handbag, um, you know, or the the nice car. Yeah. We see it so, a lot with our, with our benefit platforms. One of the most popular benefits to um, the UK in particular is holiday trading, where people have the ability to kind of buy additional holiday. So they'll pay for it, but they buy additional holiday. Flexible working is one of the best things any organization can do for somebody's mental health because it allows them to kind of integrate their work and home lives better. And I think one of the reasons why home working will continue to be the norm way past the, the pandemic um, finishes, I think we'll have a hybrid of kind of some time in the office, some time at home, which I've been doing for a decade anyway. But I think part of the reason why people want to do that is I've heard stories already of Mothers who are suddenly waking up, getting the kids ready for school, putting them in front of the computers or dropping them to school, coming back to their home, getting the brownies out of the oven that they put in first thing in the morning, putting loads of vegetables and meat in the slow cooker, and then starting work, knowing that as soon as work finishes, I've got dinner sorted, I've done some baking for the kids, they've all been taken off. And so, you know, we've got great stories, even with our own organization, of people that have found an extra two hours in their day because they don't have these really long commutes. And they're using that to kind of go for walks and practice mindfulness and go to the gym or go running in the morning where they never used to do that. That is improving their well-being. It's improving their mood. And that is going to benefit the organization. So I think time is a really valuable benefit. The more time we can give people, the better they perform. And I, I love that statement in terms of giving people time and, you know, and space as well, isn't it, about giving them the choice. I think there's, you know, there's some interesting stuff in the media in at the moment about what's going to happen after COVID and, you know, whether people will be working from home, you know, and, and I, I don't know what your thoughts on this, but from my perspective, I think it's all about choice, isn't it, about giving people the option. Exactly. And I think the only way you will ever deliver well-being to such a diverse workforce as we have now. You know, you have multiple generations of people, but you have, 
you know, the idea of the nuclear family is now right out the window. Less than 20, I think it's less than 24% of people identify in the kind of 2.4 children type nuclear family. You know, some of the latest research out shows that I think something like 60% of people under the age of 25 now do not identify as just gay or just straight. And so, you know, and this isn't a new trend. It just means we're more accepting of it. You know, there are not more gay or bisexual, or pansexual uh, or non-binary people than there ever have been. We just created an environment that these people can kind of live the lives that they wanted to. And so our diversity has never been as diverse. And so the only way you can personalize well-being is to give people that choice and allow them to change how they work and the benefits and the rewards they get from work based on what's important to them at that time. Because, you know, tomorrow, you know, I don't have kids, I'm not married, but tomorrow that could all change or next month that could all change and my priorities will change. And so my work and how I deal with work will have to change. I can no longer have 15-hour days in London and uh, three times a week and things like that because that just would not suit my lifestyle. Um, and I think also it's about... You know, do you want the best person for the job or do you want the best person for the job in that location who can do these hours? And it's this kind of getting people out of this old mold of actually you might have a really good person that works in Scotland but can only be in your office in London one day a week and you might have to pay a couple hundred quid every time that happens. But is that a better person for you to have than the person that lives two streets down the road who isn't as good? Um, and I think that's going to be a fascinating change as well as about how do we create and bespoke and personalise those experiences at work in order to get the best out of people and to get the best people. Now, you made an interesting comment there about different people being at different stages of their lives. Does well-being change depend on sort of the, the individual? So the obviously the age and, and where they're at. And have you seen any patterns and trends, um, you know, around that as well? So, you know, what do you, our CFOs, what do our strategic leaders need to be thinking about from that perspective? So I think um, the, the overarching message is any assumption you have now goes completely out the window. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, you had an executive, senior executive at Marks and Spencer's who gave birth to their first child at 52, 53. You know, the average age of the first time house buyer in London is now about 41 years old. The rest of the country, it's kind of 30 something. So these old kind of ideas we've got about people entering their 20s and wanting to save for a house and start a family. They're entering their 20s, they're paying off student debt, they're trying to live a life, then they're looking at starting a family in their 30s. Far less people are having families. You know, the divorce rate in the UK is now 50%, so 50% of marriages will fail, and that's obviously a stressful experience uh, and uh, expensive experience to go through. So I think well-being can change on the drop of a hat, I think literally overnight. I think people can, you know, I do lots of work about financial well-being, and I remember I had a a cleaner, um, uh, an old cleaner that knew I did stuff around financial well-being, and she kind of spoke to me one day about um, she was um, only ever, she was only paying interest only on her mortgage, um, and she had been for quite a number of years. She had a car on finance, and she was struggling to make the payments. And she was asking for my advice, and obviously told her I wasn't a financial advisor, I couldn't help. Um, but about three weeks later, her mother died, um, and you know that was obviously really sad and difficult for her. But the house was completely mortgage-free. Her mother had more money than her and her brother thought, and the house sold really quickly. So within a space of about four to five weeks, she went from a really difficult financial position to having about 70 grand, and then all of a sudden have a whole new set of problems, which were, what is the best way to spend this? Like, should I be paying off my mortgage? Like, should I still be having a car on finance? And I remember kind of introduced her to a financial advisor to have that conversation. But a really good example of how she went from one end of the spectrum in that area of one, one area of well-being almost overnight. Um, 
And I think we see the same with people who are struggling with mental health. You know, if you've got a mental health condition, you're more likely to fall into a position of problem debt, which causes you a whole new set of issues. If you're in problem debt, you're more likely to develop a mental health condition. So all areas of well-being are very, very cyclical and they all influence each other. So solving one problem doesn't mean you then don't create another problem. Um, it's all kind of levers and, and well-being will never, you will never solve well-being. It's a never ending kind of task. We will, it will always change. Unfortunately, things will happen to us. There's a very core set of really predictable life events that causes a lot of stress, moving house, moving job, falling ill, death of a loved one, kind of break up, breakdown of a relationship. And every single employee will go through those pretty regularly throughout their lifetime. And so we just need to be able to make sure, I think, that we're there for people. Um, but yeah, very, very difficult to kind of to, to run well-being an organization. And part of the reason why it needs to become part of the DNA of the company is because you're always going to be solving a well-being problem for somebody at some point. So from that perspective, then, if we think about... Um the guy, the people that are listening to this, and they're thinking, right, that sounds brilliant. But from a from a strategic and a financial perspective, where should we be investing to support employee wellbeing programs? Because, like you said, it's not the slide that makes the difference. How, you know, what kind of things should we be investing in as strategic leaders to to improve wellbeing? Is it training for for management? Is it, um, you know, like you say? Um, flexible working capacity? Or what is it that people need and we should be thinking about? So part, part of my work as Chair for Wellbeing for Engage Success, which is a UK government-backed uh, organisation, voluntary movement, um, I created this kind of wellbeing matrix and it's based around the idea that we think of wellbeing as pillars. Most organisations will have some kind of wellbeing pillars. Uh, and at Benefex, through all the research we did, we kind of established those as Emotional well-being, which is mental health, but the word mental still has a stigma attached to it. So we use men, uh, emotional well-being, uh, emotional well-being, physical well-being, uh, financial well-being, um, what we call leisure well-being and um, community well-being. And community plays a really big part, even before the pandemic, of you know the social capital we've got at work, the people we can rely on, that we're not lonely at work, that we have friends, we've got people we can trust. You know, that kind of network is really, really important. And leisure well-being, again, we established this before the pandemic, was doing the things we love with the people we love is really important. So going out to bars and cinemas and all the things we haven't been able to do is a really important part uh, of our well-being and, and living a, a life uh, that's kind of full and enjoyable. And so I think by categorizing well-being, you can start to think, okay, in just this area, what do we do that helps people? So you can almost audit your organization now and kind of say, okay, let's look at financial well-being as an example. What are all the things we do that support financial well-being? And you might have a company pay pension, which is effectively free money that you're giving to somebody for their retirement. You might have um, some associated kind of support with employee assistance programs who can help you with debt or if you're stressed and worried about money. You might pay above living uh, living wage. And so all of a sudden you can start to think, okay, so we do a few things here that allow um, people to kind of, uh, or how we support that area of well-being. So I think that audit um, and to kind of create that, okay, what are all the things we do is a really, really good exercise to go through because every time I've done it with an employer, right around the world, they do a lot more than they think they did at the start of the conversation. Um, and so I think that's that kind of works really, really well um, to kind of just get people to establish what does well-being look like currently in our organisation? What do we want it to look like in the future? Um, and that way you start to pull out things like you mentioned, like flexible working and the impact that has on 
community well-being because it allows people to spend more time with their family, for example. Um, but flexible working also improves mental health because, again, that work-life integration uh, exists. So I think that's a really good starting point for anyone to kind of audit what you do around well-being at the moment. Brilliant. And if they, if people want to find out more about, you know, about yourself, your book, or the work that you do, and also perhaps that matrix that you mentioned, what are some resources that they can access? And, you know, and, and where can they find out more about these things? So a lot of the writing I do appears on the Benefits blog, so under the resources tab of hellobenefits.com. Um, I also write regularly for HR Zone, which is an online HR magazine. Um, there are lots of my kind of opinions and personal views, so I can speak a lot more freely on, on that kind of on that platform. Um, engaged success uh, well-being um, you can find if you go to engagedsuccess.org and, and navigate to the well-being tab. You can find some information there. Um, I, I welcome people to connect with me on Twitter and LinkedIn um, at World of Good Book on Twitter. I share lots of the research that I come across and interesting kind of anecdotes and and where possible case studies as well. So happy to kind of share resources with any of your listeners. Brilliant. And for those that are listening and are interested, I will pop the links to Gethin's profile, um, his book as well. So it's definitely, that's available on Amazon for those that would like to know. And I'll also put some of those links in as well. So thank you, Gethin. This has been incredibly interesting. Are there any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our audience? You know, particularly, you know, coming from a finance perspective, what's the, you know, what's the thing that you'd most like finance directors and CFOs to understand? So there was a really good Deloitte report on well-being and mental health that was issued in early 2020. And it's one of the best examples we've got of the return on investment you get for well-being at work. Uh, and there's an estimated return of £5 for every £1 invested in employee well-being. Very rarely will you get that kind of return anywhere else in a business. So I think it will easily wash its face when you invest in well-being. You know, the, the cost you invest, you will get that back and that's easily demonstrable. But I think... Any leaders in an organization need to understand the important part that well-being plays in organizational success. Well-being is no longer this kind of progressive idea led to the, left to the cool brands. It's a core part of being a successful business. And if you don't take it seriously and you don't invest in it, I genuinely think like you just, don't, you just won't have a business going into the future because the investors, your consumers, the government, all the lobby groups, you know, we just have to look at what's happened to Uber over the last, uh, over the last few years without actually being railroaded by consumers and the London mayor and the UK government and all the courts and the Supreme Court to basically say, no, the way you treat people is not good enough. You must do better. And every time you, know, you open the newspaper, you'll see a sports director, Wells Fargo, an Uber and Amazon. Every time you're not taking care of your people, the media are poised, waiting to tell everyone that you're not a good employer. And I think that is an expensive mistake to make. Absolutely. And that's definite food for thought for everybody listening you know uh, don't follow the ubers and the you know uh, the ubers of the world and uh, yeah and you know you can see it in the 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 way that we're reporting now and the annual reporting it's it's all about those you know it's all about more than just the the bottom line it's about the the other investments and the factors that have it so thank you so much gethin it's been amazing to have you on the show and again for anybody that's listening I'll pop all of those brilliant links and I'll see if we can dig out that uh, that Deloitte report as well and pop that in in the show notes as well so thank you so much it's been fantastic having you on the show thank you very much for having me it's been a pleasure thank you